We're continuing our series, uh, of course, in Matthew 13, and I'm going to be reading Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43, and that's, uh, uh, that starts on page 979 in your Red Bibles. Just give you a moment to find that. So Matthew, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch on its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything, out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everybody. Please do keep that part of the Bible open as we look at it together, and that would be really helpful. Over the summer, I read a a biography of an American missionary called Adoniram Judson. 
I do what I do every summer, which is take away a massive stack of books with high expectations and end up reading one or two. Uh, here's one I did read. Um, you might have heard about Adoniram Judson. Um, he was a missionary who pioneered a work in Burma in the early 1800s, along with his wife, Anne, um, who herself was a remarkable woman. And as I read this biography, I was struck that so much of their lives were marked by hardship and suffering and disappointment. There were personal tragedies as they lost children in infancy, eventually as, as Anne herself died at a young age. There were physical challenges, um, like the long spell that Adoniram spent in prison, slowly wasting away under truly horrendous circumstances. But above all for the Judsons were the spiritual challenges of their new situation. They worked tirelessly in Burma for about six years before anyone um, became a Christian and before they saw any real fruit from their work. Six years of toil and suffering and labor and hardship, learning the language, speaking about Jesus without any people coming to faith in him and very few people showing any interest at all in Christianity. I got about a third of the way through this book and I was tempted to think the work of Christ seems so pathetic. If that's what it's all about, then it seems so pathetic, so small, so hard. We could easily multiply those examples, couldn't we, across our church family, across the world, down the ages. Do you ever ask yourself, why does the number of people who follow Jesus seem so small? Why does the influence that Christians have in this world seem so weak? And why does the cause of Christ seem so frail? You can feel as a Christian like you've sided with a team at the bottom of the league who just keeps getting pummeled again and again. And that can easily lead us to feeling discouraged or disheartened or disillusioned because of the slow, seemingly insignificant work of the gospel. Now, perhaps you're here this morning listening in. Uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I wonder if you've ever thought the same kind of thing about Christianity. If there is a God who rules this world... And if Jesus is God's king, as he claims to be, then why does the world carry on like it does? Why does evil go unchecked? Why does Christianity seem so pathetic? Well, I think the key in all of this is expectations, isn't it? What do we expect God's kingdom to be like? How do we expect God to work in this world? And do our expectations align with reality? As we come to Matthew chapter 13 again, these are the questions we'll be thinking about this morning. Um, as we've already uh, thought uh, today, this section of the Bible, um, Jesus is teaching the people in parables. And one way to think about parables is that they are stories that give us a dose of reality. Stories that give us a dose of reality. They overturn our worldviews, they challenge our expectations, and they open our eyes to what's really going on in this world for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, you might have noticed, as Paul read our passage, that we've got three parables before us this morning, and all of them begin uh, with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a farmer sowing seed in the ground. It's like a mustard seed being planted in a field. It's like yeast working its way through the dough. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is a way to summarize the hope of God's people at the time when Jesus arrived on the scene. They were waiting for and praying for the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. 
And it was a deep longing of God's people because they knew that when God's kingdom arrived and God began to rule as king, then he would overturn evil once and for all. He would bring justice and he would live with his people forever in a perfect world. That is the hope of the kingdom of heaven. That is why God's people were longing for it to come. And Jesus in these parables wants his hearers to know what is that kingdom like? How does it come? How does it grow? And what does it look like to be part of it? Now, there are two ideas um, that I think Jesus wants us to grasp in this passage about the kingdom of heaven. Firstly, the triumph of the kingdom is delayed. And secondly, the growth of the kingdom is hidden. So let's think about that first one. The triumph of the kingdom is delayed. This is what we see in the first parable. So look down with me at verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. This is the first image that Jesus gives us about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. Now, last week, we had a farming parable, didn't we, uh, with the parable of the sower. This week, we're continuing in the farming world, but there's a story here of farming sabotage. Farmer goes out to sow good seed in his field. He's expecting that the good seed will lead to good wheat. But as the farmer and his workers sleep at night, there's an enemy who gets to work. Another sower sowing different seed. And this enemy sneaks in at night, sows weeds among the wheat, and goes away. And when we had our church office at Dumbarton Road, I remember there was a, a time there where we were the victim of um, a plant plot, a bit of sabotage in our front garden. Someone uh, in the night just came up to the, outside Dumbarton Road, took the expensive plants away from our front garden and just went off with them. And so we arrived the next morning and there were these holes left where the plants used to be. But the sabotage in this parable isn't immediately obvious to the farmers, is it, like it was to us at that time. For a time, the two plants grow up side by side, and the work of the enemy is unknown until verse 26. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. Now, the servants of the farmer are surprised because they know that the farmer has sown good seed in his field. So where did the weeds come from? But the farmer knows, doesn't he? Verse 28, an enemy did this. Which brings us to the question that the servants ask in verse 28, a natural question. Do you want us to go into the field and pull up all the weeds? No farmer wants a field full of weeds at the end of the harvest. There's no profit um, in weeds, I don't think. And so why don't the servants just sweep in, pull up the weeds, get rid of these unwanted plants, and be done with it? Well, do you see the answer the farmer gives? He says, no. Not yet. Be patient. Wait. A time is coming when these weeds will be pulled up and bundled together and burned, but not yet. 
And if you do that now, there's a danger that the wheat will be rooted up along with the weeds. Wait until the harvest. Then the weeds will be sorted from the wheat. Now, if you were listening in to this parable when Jesus was teaching, without an explanation, as we thought about with the parable of the sower, it would be very hard to glean what is going on here, wouldn't it, if you'll excuse the pun. You might have a guess at who the farmer is, um, maybe have a guess at what the seed is, what the wheat is, when the harvest comes, but really you'd be left confused and uncertain about what's really going on here in this parable that Jesus tells. But the positive response from the disciples in this passage is that they don't leave it there with the story. After Jesus has spoken the three parables, they ask him for an explanation. We're just going to jump down to verse 36 to see the explanation that Jesus gives. Have a look at verse 36. Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes into the house and his disciples come to him and say, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Do you see that they do the very thing that Jesus has been teaching the crowds to do all the way through these parables? They seek understanding. They want to know what it is that he's been saying. They look for an explanation. So let's have a look at how Jesus explains it in verse 37. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. We get a very helpful kind of glossary from Jesus, don't we, about what's going on in the parable. Jesus says there are two sowers. There's the Son of Man, Jesus, who sows good seed. The second is the devil, verse 39, the enemy of Jesus. And the place where they're doing the sowing is the world. But what are the seeds that are being sown in this parable? Well, here is one key difference between the parable of the sower and then the parable of the weeds that we're looking at this morning. In the parable of the sower, do you remember the, the seed is the word that Jesus is speaking, the word that he's scattering to people and different responses to that word. But here, in this parable, it's the people themselves who are sown in the field. Verse 38, the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Both are growing up together, side by side in our world, as we wait for the final harvest. Now, I think that one of the big shocks of this, for those who are hearing um, what Jesus is saying, the Jewish hearers at this time, was that they were waiting for the kingdom of heaven, but not like this. If we were to use the words of the band Queen, they wanted it all, and they wanted it now. And that was not a crazy thing to expect from the Old Testament. It did seem in many places in the Old Testament that the Messiah, God's King, would come and usher in his kingdom and deal with evil once and for all. That was the expectation. And yet here is their King, Jesus Christ, who says that there will be a delay. He says we need to wait for the final triumph of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, the harvest is coming. The end of the age is near. But until then, people will not see the kingdom of heaven in all its fullness. It's only on this future day when God will finally accomplish his work. Until then, we need to wait. Just have a look from verse 40 at what he says about this harvest that's coming. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. 
They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. These are sobering words, aren't they? The Jesus who loves this world and who gave his life for the salvation of this world is the same Jesus who speaks this word of judgment because he wants us to listen. Quite often, I don't know whether you're like me on the motorway, but I I drive down the motorway and I see those signs on the side of the road that say, slow down, accident ahead, go down to 40 miles an hour. And I think like most of the drivers I see on the road, a lot of the time I don't really believe what they're saying because too often I've slowed down and then realized the accident's cleared and actually I could have just carried on at the normal speed. Now, it's incredibly dangerous if we treated the words of Jesus like I treat those signs because he's the son of man. That's a title used here that is from the Old Testament that denotes the one with all authority from God, the king of God's kingdom. He is uniquely qualified to tell us where this world is heading. And he says that there is a very different future awaiting the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. Have a look at verse 41 again. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. If God is going to have a pure kingdom as he intends, where there is nothing evil and nothing impure and nothing wicked, then there has to be a judgment. There has to be a separation because nothing will be allowed to tarnish God's new kingdom that he is bringing. Nothing will be allowed to affect this new world that God wants to be pure. That is unbelievably good news, isn't it, for those who will dwell in this kingdom. No more evil ever. But at the same time, it leads to judgment for the sons of the evil one. Let's look at verse 42. They will be thrown, they, the angels, will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the book of Revelation, we read that the devil, the enemy of God, is thrown into the fiery furnace in a place of fire. And the sobering truth here is that every son of his will be cast into the same place, a place of weeping. Those who find themselves there in this unimaginable torment and distress will be weeping under the judgment of God. And there will be gnashing of teeth. In the book of Acts, people gnash their teeth in anger at the apostle Stephen when he speaks words about Jesus. They're enraged at what he's saying. And it seems here in this place of torment that the enemies of God continue in their rage against him and against his king. So I think this little phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, we have a mixture of sadness and anger and desperation and regret and pain, all rolled up in the dreadful fate of those who refuse God's king. This is a serious warning for all of us living in God's world. But do you remember what's going on in the parable? Do you remember that there's a delay in the judgment of God? In the kindness of God, he has delayed this judgment. Remember what the farmer said to his servants in verse 29 as we looked at the parable. Don't pull up the weeds now because if you do, you may root up the wheat with them. In other words, there's a delay for the sake of God's people. There's a window of opportunity before the final harvest where anyone with ears to hear can turn to Jesus their king and embrace his words 
and trust in him and become one of those people planted in the kingdom of heaven. Just think about what's already happening as Jesus is speaking at this moment in Matthew. The work of separation has begun, hasn't it, as Jesus is speaking. There were those um, who are in the house who are seeking understanding And there are those who are outside who remain in ignorance and unbelief. In other words, the end-time harvest is being worked out now at this very moment in people's response to Jesus. He's telling us that there will be, where we will be on the day of the harvest is determined by where our heart is now. The crucial thing that will determine our eternity is our response to the words of God's Messiah. To be a son of the evil one, as the language uh, is used here, is simply to treat Jesus as the devil treats Jesus. And how does the devil treat Jesus? Well, he rejects him, he rejects his word, he hardens his heart to his word. That is what we all do by nature. We are all people who cause sin and who do evil and who reject God's king. We all naturally choose to live our lives outside God's house, if I can put it like that. But if we hear what Jesus is saying and we recognize our need of him and we embrace his word and his salvation, then we will be sown into his kingdom through his undeserved kindness and grace. There is a delay in the triumph of God's kingdom. There is a delay. We need to wait. But the delay is an opportunity to face up to reality now and to side with God's king and his words. That's not the only window into reality that Jesus wants to give us in these parables. The second big point of today's passage is there in verses 31 to 33. The growth of the kingdom is hidden. These next two parables are closely linked together, as we'll see, and they again overturn our expectations about the kingdom of heaven. We might look at the lives of Anne and Adoniram Judson and conclude that the kingdom of heaven is a nonsense, We might look at the weakness of the church around the world and think that we're on the losing side. But Jesus says, don't be deceived by appearances. Look down with me at verses 31 and 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So the next parable stays in the field for a little bit longer, and here we have a man planting a mustard seed in the ground. Now, just to clarify, mustard seeds don't produce the mustard you might have with your steak and chips. A different plant. I found that out this week. I also found out that a mustard seed in the ancient world was used as a way of expressing smallness. It had a kind of proverbial sense to it, a bit like we might say something is as small as a gnat, or as tiny as a mouse, or as small as a baby's finger. Is that a phrase? I've read that online. I don't know whether it's a phrase. The point is, it's small. But though it's the smallest of all the seeds, when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. We had a competition among our students last year where we asked a few of them to grow a plant from a mustard seed and see how tall they could grow it. Um, Here was the star performer. There's a Moreland's pen in there for scale, if you can see that. (laughs) Congratulations to Emma Bell. Now, apparently, they can grow even bigger, up to 20 feet in some cases. Huge growth from a tiny seed. That's the point. The growth of this seed is out of all proportion to its tiny beginnings. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven 
is like that. In verse 32, the language used to describe the growth of the plant comes from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 4, for example, is a place where the kingdom of Babylon, um, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, is described like this. A kingdom that is huge like a tree, but it's a kingdom that does not last. Later on in the Bible story, again, um, we have similar language in the book of Ezekiel, this time to describe what the Lord will do for his people when he establishes his kingdom. And we read this on the screen. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. So here is a promise uh, given by God that he would establish his people in a place of safety and refuge in his kingdom. And that promise is being picked up here in Matthew chapter 13. God is going to establish this kingdom, this huge, expansive, everlasting kingdom. But the surprise here in this parable is its small beginnings. Just think about Jesus' ministry at this time. What could be smaller than this? Seemingly insignificant Jewish man, Jesus, who comes into this world in obscurity, who's here speaking on a boat in Galilee, and who will soon die in weakness and shame on a cross. Seems so small, so insignificant. But Jesus is saying, here is where you'll see the beginning of the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that will grow and grow and grow. Do not be deceived by appearances. Don't miss what is going on in the ministry of Jesus. He, God's king, is ushering in the long-awaited worldwide kingdom of heaven. Now we move on in our next parable uh, from the farm to the kitchen, and we join a woman working some yeast into her dough. So let's have a look at verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, we we're entering into the great British bake-off season as a nation, which means many of us will be bread experts soon, if you're not already. Any budding bakers might be interested to know that the large amount of flour here is the equivalent of three-fifths of a bushel. That's 30 kilograms in modern measurement. In other words, you could make um, enough bread here to feed about 10 football teams. Do you see the similarities here with the um, parable of the mustard seed? We have something, again, small, growing powerfully. The yeast is placed in the flour and has a penetrating, transforming effect. It permeates the flour until every part is affected. And we know with this process, because we've watched Bake Off, that once it starts, you can't stop it, can you? You can't turn off the bread machine mid need and remove the yeast from the dough. Once it's in there, it's going to have its effect, isn't it? But as well as the smallness of the yeast here, we also need to see the hiddenness of the yeast. Our translations here say that the yeast is mixed into the flour. And that word mixed is the same word that Matthew uses later on in our passage that we'll see next week in verse 44. It could be translated hid. In verse 44, a man finds some treasure and he hides it again. In this parable, the woman takes some yeast and she hides it in the flour. Now, it seems significant that Matthew would use the same word here as he does later on in the passage. No one can see the yeast. 
but everyone can see its effect. Gradually, it works its way through the dough. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. It is hidden, invisible, imperceptible, but it will grow with tremendous power. Just think, for example, about one of the families um, in our church plugging away with teaching their children about Jesus. Perhaps they open the Bible together over breakfast every morning, praying and chatting, sometimes shouting over the noise, children tipping over milk or falling off their chairs. Resemblance to our family is uh, coincidental in this story. Now, no one else knows what's going on, do they, during these breakfast times. Many people would think that what's going on there is, is pointless. But gradually over time, by God's grace, the transforming impact of God's word is felt. The children come to know the Lord. They grow up to perhaps have children of their own who go on to tell others about the kingdom of Christ and the yeast works its way out through the dough. Or think of the growing number of believers in Iran. As we thought about recently um, at church, it's a country where Christianity is spreading incredibly fast. But all of that work is unseen, underground, taking place through hushed conversations and secret meetings. And yet the transforming power of God's word to grow his kingdom is evident. You might want to talk in growth groups this week about other examples of this that you can see around you. The hidden work of God. And if we understand this hidden work, then I think we'll be corrected in two helpful ways as Christians. First, we'll be corrected if we think that the kingdom will only grow through grand displays of success. Whether that's huge evangelistic rallies or packed events or impressive buildings and so on. God has used those things for great good over the years. But it seems that the normal way God works is not like that. He works in small, hidden ways conversation over coffee with someone who is recently bereaved, or a relationship formed in a playground, a sermon preached by an ordinary preacher. I think it gives us great confidence, doesn't it, whoever we are, that this is how God's kingdom will grow, through seemingly hidden, small, weak ways through us. And we can be sure that what may appear weak to the world is part of God's plan to grow his kingdom. But I think it's also a correction to us if we're tempted to think that growth will never come. You see, at previous times in British history, church buildings were packed. There's a reason why this balcony was built in this church building many years ago. Because the growth of the kingdom at that point seemed self-evident. Buildings were packed out. People were living out the gospel. It doesn't feel like that any longer in our country, and we're rightly discouraged by shrinking numbers attending church, church buildings closing their doors, small turnouts to events. But that should never lead us to think that the kingdom of heaven is not growing. We need to open our eyes to reality, Jesus says. We need to take a long view, seeing the work of God over time. We need to take a a global view, looking around at the spread of the gospel all over the world. And we need to take a view of our church, don't we? Thinking how God has been at work here, transforming lives. The small beginnings of the kingdom. Jesus, with his disciples, a king about to die and rise again, is the start of the slow, hidden, but tremendous growth of God's kingdom. Now this morning we've been hearing the revealing powerful words of Jesus, our king, who describes to us the world in which we live. 
And as with the parable of the sower, so now at the end of these parables, Matthew takes a step back and reminds us of the privileged position that we are in. And he reminds us again of the vital importance of hearing and understanding these parables of Jesus. So we meet at our final verses in verses 34 and 35. Here's Matthew taking a step back and explaining the purpose of parables. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks these parables, we read here that he is uttering things that have been hidden since the creation of the world. He is revealing the truth. He's showing how the promises of God and the kingdom of heaven are fulfilled in him. And for those with ears to hear who seek understanding like the disciples, they are able to grasp the hidden realities of the kingdom of heaven. They're given insight into what this world is really all about. But in the psalm that's quoted here, and I encourage you to to read it um, this week, Psalm 78, a big theme running through that psalm is also the hard-hearted unbelief of the people of God. The psalm again and again confronts God's people with the awesome, gracious acts of God in salvation. But again and again, we see the stubborn, rebellious attitude of the people of God. They shut their ears to him. They rebel against him. They fail to hear his words. And so do you see, as Jesus now stands as a fulfillment of this psalm, as he stands as God's great prophet, revealing the hidden things of God to this world, the question is, will you have ears to hear? Will you have ears to hear? And in particular, as we conclude, will you hear and understand Jesus' two vital lessons on reality? Firstly, that the harvest is real. The harvest is real. In the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summary of the Christian faith, we read that Jesus ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come. And the reason why he has not come yet is for the sake of the sons of the kingdom. Every day God gives us before the harvest is a day where he is gathering his people as they encounter the words of Jesus and where he is keeping his people going as they continue to hear the words of Jesus. And so as we've heard the words of Jesus this morning, we have been brought to this point of decision, haven't we? We've been given an opportunity by God to prepare for the harvest to come. Will we have ears to hear? But as well as knowing that the harvest is real, we also need to know that the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is growing. Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of heaven has never been about impressiveness or packed stadiums or worldly success. It has always been about small beginnings, hidden work, unseen growth. But growth that by God's power is real and utterly transformative, like yeast in the dough. In Myanmar, which is modern-day Burma, where the Judsons were missionaries, they rejoiced um, back then to see one convert to Christianity after six years of labor. There are now over three million Christians there. The kingdom of heaven is growing, isn't it? As the gospel penetrates lives, alters worldviews, transforms churches, impacts families, and all of that happening all over the world, all of the time. 
mistake the long view. Remember the global view. And remember that even though the growth of the kingdom is hidden now, it will not always be so. There will be a time, just have a look down at verse 43 where Jesus ends. There will be a time when the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What could be more visible than that, than the sun? Here are the righteous ones of God, revealed to be who they are. On that day, all our strivings for Christ will be revealed as worth it. And we will see with absolute clarity, glorious clarity, the worldwide kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That day is coming. Let me pray. John sees a vision in the book of Revelation of the final triumph of the kingdom, and he writes this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, make this world right again. Bring your people home to this day. And in the meantime, we ask you to continue that hidden work of gathering your children through your words for the glory of your name. Amen.